to the preaching and teaching ministry of Marion Oaks Assembly of God in Ocala, Florida. We invite you to open your Bible as we join Pastor Tim McIntyre for today's message for Bible study. Tonight, we continue our series on answering tough questions with can women be pastors, preachers, or teachers, at least according to the Bible. And this is a very um, interesting topic. It's also one that is had debated between different religious traditions and has been all through the history of the church. It's not a new one. It's not a new topic. Okay. Um, it's been a big issue this year, though, especially for a number of denominations, um, especially the Southern Baptists, because one of their largest and most popular and most well-known churches, they disfellowshipped, which basically means they decided you're not going to be a Southern Baptist anymore. Um, it's a church that maybe you've heard of. It's Saddleback Church, Pastor Rick Warren, who for decades has been a major leader um, in the Christian evangelical world, he's written a lot of great books on church growth and ministry and such like that. And as the traditional Southern Baptist held to all those beliefs, but over the last couple of years, done some studying on his own and, and, and really digging into it, and says, "I think I'm going to. I think I can see things a little bit different about women's involvement in ministry." Okay, because the traditional Southern Baptist viewpoint is that women are not to be leaders, teachers, or preachers um, in the church, okay? Um, again, this is not new. It's been debated all through the history of the church, and there's a whole range of views. It's not just yes or no, okay? There are those who believe that women should have absolutely no leadership roles in the church except over women and children. That's it. Then there's the one that's a little bit further along the line that says that they can have some leadership roles as long as they're not an elder or a pastor. And then there's another one that's a little bit further along that says that they can have some leadership roles, including being a pastor, as long as they're not the lead pastor. And then you have the far end is that they can have any leadership roles in the church, even as the lead pastor. Okay. Now, I'll just tell you that we... As a church, are part of the Assemblies of God, and the Assemblies of God have a long tradition in history that we believe that God has opened doors for women to be involved in every area of leadership in the church and have seen a lot of good things that have happened as God has poured out his spirit and used men and women in all different roles and models. But the important thing we need to keep in mind, um, no matter how you feel about it or whatever, this is not one of those things that's like, well, one side's a heretic and one side's not. There are good Christian people who believe all along the spectrum. And they're not just doing it because of their personal feelings, and they're not doing it because some have been accused is that they're giving into culture and feminism and, and all that kind of stuff. No, it's based on what people see in Scripture, and that's what we're going to base our study on tonight. Okay? So, we're going to be working our way through a number of issues that are related to help us lay a foundation. And the first thing I want us to talk about is the fact that it is very clear in the Bible that women were used in leadership and to speak for God in the Old Testament. 
Okay, and we need to define a word before we jump in. I'm going to ask you to give me examples. You know, we're going to brainstorm. Um, and that word is very important both for the Old Testament and the New Testament, and that word is prophet. God had prophets in the Old Testament. He had prophets in the New Testament. What is a prophet? How would you define prophet? Someone who elaborates God's what? God's will or way for the future. So does it always have to do with the future? No. That's part of prophecy. That's what most people think. When they think of prophecy, they think, oh, predictions of the future. Because there are so many prophecies in the Bible that include predictions of the future. But that's only part of prophecy. What else does prophecy include? Vita? What? They talk for God. Yeah. They speak for God. I put it on your note sheet. This, a prophet is someone who speaks for God, someone who brings God's message. And it's not because they choose to. Okay? In fact, a lot of them didn't want to be prophets. And God said, I'm calling you. Because especially in the Old Testament, the prophets were not well liked because God often raised them up to speak against sin and injustice and all that kind of stuff and to shake up God's people when they weren't doing the right thing. But a prophet is someone who speaks for God, someone who brings God's message. I would say that's pretty important, don't you think? I mean, I would think if you're speaking for God because he's given you a message. Now, I would say that today some people, I wouldn't go that far, but some people would say anytime a pastor gets up to preach or teach, they're involved in prophecy. Um, I, I wouldn't label it that way because um, I don't necessarily see that in Scripture. A, a pastor or a teacher or a preacher is speaking for God in the sense if they're accurately teaching and preaching God's word. But that's based on what God has spoken in the past in applying it to today, okay? Whereas a prophet is usually someone who's speaking a word that God's giving them right then, which will always be in agreement with God's word, okay? So that's very important. Prophecy is a very important aspect of ministry for God and of speaking for God. So what are some women that were used by God in the Old Testament to either speak for God? They were prophets, prophets. Prophetesses is, I guess, a way you could put that to make it feminine. Um, or we're involved in leadership. Deborah. Deborah. Yes. Who was Deborah? My sister. Your sister. <laughs> she lived in the Old Testament. She was named after the lady in the Old Testament. So who was Deborah in the Old Testament? <laughs> yeah, she sat under a tree. That's where her place of leadership was. She was a judge and a prophet or prophetess. Okay. Who are some other women that God used in the Old Testament? Miriam. What? Miriam. Miriam. And who was Miriam? Moses' sister. One of the first and best things she ever did was protect her little brother. But what did Miriam do in leadership? What? She criticized her brother. That's the kind of side of leadership you don't want to manifest. Okay. Yeah, leaders make mistakes. Yeah. Um, and she was disciplined for it. Yes. But Miriam also was a prophet or prophetess. Okay. Any other thoughts about who in the Old Testament women that were used in leadership or to speak for God? Um, may not necessarily be Esther. Esther. Yeah. 
It's a little bit different because she didn't lead people, but God used her in a key way. There's a lot of women that God used in key ways that maybe wouldn't be categorized as a leader or a prophet, but God used them in key ways. Yeah. Well, I gave you three examples um, in Scripture. You've mentioned two of them. The third one is not as well known, but it's a significant one. The first one is Miriam, the one that, um, uh, that Lisa mentioned. Number one, Miriam was Moses' sister, was a prophetess. Okay? Uh, for a lot of these, I've given you a scripture, so you've got the reference, but we're not really just going to read all of them. All right? But she was a prophetess. Um, the second one is the one that John mentioned, Deborah. She was a prophetess and a judge. Okay? Um, the judges, in case you're not aware of that, they're not like judges today where they sat in a court of law to make decisions. A judge was a leader. Um, when you read the story of God's people, you got the children of Israel being delivered out of Egypt, and they go into the wilderness under the leadership of Moses, meet with God, wander 40 years, go into the promised land under Joshua, they conquer most of it, they settle in, and then after Joshua dies, there are periods of up and down, close to God and walking away from God, and God would raise up judges to lead his people, most often to deliver them because they got themselves into trouble. Okay? Yes, Carlton. I wouldn't say they took the place of the kings. Um, they were kind of a stepping stone to getting a king. They weren't, didn't have as much power and authority as a king, but they did, they did have um, uh, great leadership. No, the kings came after the judges. The judges came before the kings. Yes. And judges were often used, most of them, not all of them, but most of them were used for a specific event, then they stepped aside. Whereas some of them did were used by God to deliver his people for a specific event and then continued to exercise leadership for a while. They weren't quite a king, but they led up to the idea of a king. John. Athaliah? Yeah, she wasn't actually a king. She was the queen mother. No, she was the only ruler, but she was the queen. A queen's not a king, but but she was ruling by herself because she was um, the daughter of Jezebel and uh, had married into the family and tried to eliminate the godly line, but God didn't let that happen. But the third one that I have not mentioned here, women who were used in leadership, uh, number three, is Huldah. she sound familiar to you? Nobody names their daughter Huldah. I don't know why. Huldah was a prophetess. You can read her story in 2 Kings 22, verses 11 to 20, and 2 Chronicles chapter 34, verses 14 to 33. Those are both the same story, just two different accounts. Huldah was a prophetess, and here's the thing that's really interesting. This is getting toward the end of the history of God's people uh, under the kings before they're going to be taken into captivity because they've been so rebellious. But after a period of rebellion and evil kings, God raised up a godly king, a king who really wanted to serve God. His name was Josiah. And he didn't even know how best to serve God other than that we've got to serve God. So to the best of his ability, he began to do some reforms in the country and get rid of the idol worshiping and this, that, and the other. And the temple had been used for idol worship, and it was a mess. So he had them go in and clean out the temple. And when they were cleaning it out, they came across a copy of God's law, which is probably the book of Deuteronomy. They brought it to Josiah and King Josiah and said, hey, we found a copy of God's law. 
And Josiah was basically just acting off of what he could remember that he'd been taught in traditions and customs. He read this thing. He says, oh, man, we've been trying hard. This is a paraphrase. But we're still missing it so bad. And they, he began to repent, and he called the people to repent. And um, he says, we've got to hear from God. So he called some of the chief priests and other men leaders. He says, go to Huldah. She's a prophetess, and tell her to ask God for a message. And God spoke through Huldah. Pretty significant position of leadership and of speaking for God. And the thing that makes it even more significant is the fact that there were other prophets that were functioning as prophets during this time. Jeremiah was a prophet during this time. Okay, So was Zephaniah, not as well known, and Nahum. And not that there'd be any wrong with that, but Josiah didn't say, go get Jeremiah and ask him what he thinks. Don't get, you know, he said, go to Huldah. So obviously Huldah was very well known and very solid as someone who spoke for God. Hmm? Yeah, Josiah served for a long time. I don't know at what point in his life. I think it was when he was a late teenager. So, there are a lot of women that God used in the Old Testament. There are a number that he used in leadership, and he used to speak for himself. Okay? Same thing in the New Testament. A lot more examples, as you can see on your note sheet. Uh, Women were used in leadership or to speak for God in the New Testament. And before I give you my list, let's brainstorm again. Give me some examples of women in the New Testament, either by name or category or description, who were used by God as leaders or to speak for him. Anna, John's wife. So John has a sister that was a prophetess and a wife that's a prophetess. Or named after one. Who is Anna? Besides your wife. When Jesus was born, when Jesus was a little baby and he was brought to the temple to be dedicated. And Anna was one of the prophetesses said that she was older. She had spent all her time in the, in the temple after she became a widow, which was a long time ago, praying, fasting, seeking God. And she prophesied over Jesus. Okay, well, who are some other women in the New Testament that God used to lead or to speak for him? Um, Phoebe. Phoebe. All right. Who's Phoebe? I think you're thinking of Lydia. Lydia. Lydia's another one. Lydia was the trader in purple. She was a, 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 a businesswoman. Yeah, but Phoebe is another one. Yeah, Phoebe's another one. What are some other women that were used in the New Testament? Garrett. Mary. Mary. Yeah. Jesus, of course, he, God really used her. But, you know, even not so much as a prophetess, but her uh, expression, song of praise, you know, the Magnificat it's called, is powerful. God's word speaking through her. Yeah. Who are some other uh, women by name or by category or description were used by God in the New Testament? to lead or to speak for him. Joan. What? The Samaritan woman, otherwise known as the woman at the... Well, yeah. She brought the message of Jesus to her whole village. And as a result of at least that initial thing, they got inquisitive and the whole village about turned to Jesus. Any other women you can think of? I know you're looking at the list trying to fill in the blanks, right? What did you say, Verissa? Priscilla. Priscilla, who's also known as Prisca. Two different ways to say the name. It's sort of like Robert and Bob, you know. 
So, okay, well, let me just give you my list. You guys are doing great, okay? But number one was Anna. I tried to put them in kind of chronological order, but not exactly. Anna was a prophetess. She was the lady in the temple when Jesus was brought as a baby, all right? Second one was the woman at the well who told her whole village about Jesus, okay? Um, Could God have had Jesus encounter a man plowing the field and had a conversation with him and him go back to the village and tell everybody? He could have. And, uh, but he chose to use a woman to be the one that would bring that message. Number three, the women at the tomb were the first, quote, preachers of the resurrection. All right? Mary Magdalene and a number of other women. And that's what was so unusual because women were not usually messengers or one to be depended upon. Not that they couldn't be depended on, I'm just saying in their culture. But God chose to work through the women to be the first ones to bring the message of the resurrection. All right. Number four is a general category, and that is that many women were prophetesses. You know, on the day of Pentecost, when God poured out his spirit, and I mean... God's moving powerfully and miraculously, and a crowd gathers, and it's like, what's going on? And Peter gets up to preach, and Peter says, this is that. This is what the prophet Joel said. What did the prophet Joel say? Acts 2.17, Peter's quoting the prophet Joel. He says, and in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Okay, And they did. So there were many women. We don't have them all by name, all right? I don't know that we have any of the prophetesses by name, okay? We have a couple of men in the New Testament that are mentioned by name, but many women were prophetesses, okay? Number five, the one that Verissa mentioned, Priscilla, um, or she's also called Prisca, uh, was a teacher. She's mentioned a number of places in the book of Acts, okay? She's usually mentioned with her husband, and in most of the places, she's mentioned first. Priscilla and Aquila. Some Bible translators years ago had a little problem with that, and so they would reverse it when they translated the Bible. But in the Greek, she's almost always mentioned first, which is significant because in their culture, the more prominent one, the more whatever would be mentioned first. And that's, that's a significant thing. In Acts chapter 18, verse 26, it's talking about this other guy named Apollos, who was a super-duper smart Bible scholar, and he knew some stuff about Jesus, And he came and began to speak about Jesus, but he didn't have all his facts totally straight. So Acts 18.26 says, He, Apollos, began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. So here we have a woman teacher who is teaching a man who's already super smart which wouldn't sit well in some churches nowadays, okay, if they don't believe that that's a good thing or a possible thing, biblically speaking, okay? And and Paul commends her for that. And again, she's mentioned over and over again, all right? Uh, Number six, Philip's daughters were prophetesses. Trivia question, who's Philip? Or who was Philip? He was an evangelist. He became an evangelist, and before he was an evangelist, what did he do In, in Scripture? He was, he was what? He was on the road, and he accosted public servants, and 
God used Philip to reach out to the Ethiopian eunuch. Somebody said a follower of Jesus. He was a follower of Jesus, but not, there, there was a different Philip that was a disciple. This is a different Philip. This Philip was one of the first um, deacons, or what we call deacons. They're not called that in Acts. But when there was that issue in the church where not all the widows were getting fed like they wanted to in the early church, he was one of the ones that was chosen to run that ministry. And we call them deacons now, a servant. All right, But then he became an evangelist and, and all that kind of stuff. Uh, he eventually settled in Caesarea. And in Acts 21.9, it says he had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. So they were prophets. They spoke for God in the early church. Okay? Number seven is unique, and this is not a definite cut and dried. We know this 100% for sure. But Junia was very possibly an apostle. This is a lady. This is a very controversial one. Okay? Romans 16.7 says, greet Adronicus and Junia. Adronicus may be her husband. We don't know for sure. Maybe they're brother and sister. Paul's writing, and he says, greet Adronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. So she's actually been in jail for the faith. They are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Now, that, that, that phrase where it says they were well known to the apostles can also be translated other ways. And they, it is translated other ways in different translations. It can also be translated that they are of note among the apostles, basically saying that they're apostles and they're good ones, okay? It could also be translated and is, are trans, is translated in some translations. They are held in high esteem among the apostles. They are prominent among the apostles. They are notable among the apostles. They are highly regarded by the apostles or highly regarded among the apostles. Okay. You say, well, there's a lot of different ways that could be translated because of the specific Greek word there. And, um, but in many, not all at all, but many um, translations, it says they are well known to the apostles. And one of the reasons is because many translators say there's no way a lady could have been an apostle, so it can't mean that they were that she was prominent among the apostles. The thing that's really interesting is that through church history, some of the translators struggle with this so much that they actually translated Junia as Junius, which is a male name. So if you look in some of the older translations, it may say, greet Adronicus and Junius. The only problem is that Junius is a male name cannot be found anywhere in the Roman Empire. If you go back in archaeology, whereas they find the female name Junia over 250 times just in the city of Rome in archaeological uh, uh, stuff. Okay, so anyway, Junia very possibly was an apostle. Uh, number eight, women prayed and prophesied. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Okay, so um, an apostle in general, the word means a sent one, a messenger, okay? So that was where word was used sometimes is just somebody who was sent to take a message. Technically speaking, in the New Testament, you have the original 12, well, 11 because Judas, and then Judas was released, so 12 apostles, okay? They have a certain level. They were established by Jesus and that kind of thing. There are a couple of other people who were in very significant leadership in the church that are also called apostles. Barnabas was called an apostle, a couple of other people, all right? And so um, uh, that is what an apostle is, someone who is sent. 
Yeah, the, the disciples were first, a disciple is a follower, an apostle is a sent one. So the disciples were first disciples, they followed Jesus, learned and grew, and then he sent them out, and they were both at the same time. They were still a follower of Jesus, but they also became an apostle, okay? But again, when you look at scripture, the original 12 are, have kind of a higher level, and then there's some other ones that are kind of a little bit lower level, but then in a very just practical way, anybody that's sent by somebody else could be called an apostle, but as far as a title, that's what we have, Okay? Thank you for asking that, because there may have been other people that were wondering the same thing. Yes, Lynn. Yeah, I don't know that we need to differentiate that. You know, the question for, so we can put it on the recording, is how did we differentiate between the Old Testament prophets and the New Testament prophets? Um, Hebrews 1 says that God spoke, I could add in primarily, through the prophets in the Old Testament, but now that Jesus has come, he's spoken through Jesus. And Jesus, of course, is the ultimate but God, in his wisdom, still used prophets in the New Testament. Prophets in the Old Testament spoke for God. Prophets in the New Testament spoke for God. Okay? Um, we have a lot more. We don't have very many, much prophecy written down from prophets in the New Testament, just little bits and pieces in the book of Acts. Like, I think it's Agabus prophesied that there be a famine in Jerusalem, you know, and the church did something about that. But it talked about uh, prophets in the New Testament. And Paul, it's a whole... Shoo, big study of spiritual gifts said one of the spiritual gifts is prophecy, speaking for God. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's all done through the Holy Spirit. Even though it isn't mentioned so much in the Old Testament, I think the prophets in the Old Testament spoke through the power and anointing of the Holy Spirit too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's right. That's right. Okay, number eight, women prayed and prophesied in public. Now, I don't mean out on the street corners. I'm not saying that never happened, but in church, in services, in public services. Okay, um, Paul gives instructions, 1 Corinthians 11.5. He says, but every wife or woman, the word there that can be translated wife or woman, who prays or prophesies. Um, just that little phrase, but that's talk, it's talking about spiritual gifts, and it's talking about women that God uses in a church service to pray or prophesy in public, okay? And the reason I'm emphasizing that is because part of the contention here is that women should not be doing this in mixed company. They shouldn't be doing it in public and all that kind of stuff, all right? All right, number nine, Euodia. I, I deliberately left these names in because for you guys to have to write them down, it would take a lot longer, okay? Euodia and Syntyche were fellow workers, quote, with Paul, you read about them in Philippians chapter 4, verses 2 to 3. And apparently they had some kind of difference of opinion because Paul in the middle of Philippians says, hey, can you help those ladies, ladies, get your issue worked out? And he asked somebody else to kind of help them do that. But he still loves them. I mean, they're still fellow workers. It's just they were having a problem. And he says, you need to get that worked out. Okay? And he calls them fellow workers. The thing that's interesting, these are women. And I don't think he's, he's saying that they were really... Good cooks for potlucks. This term for fellow workers is the same word he uses for people like Timothy, Epaphroditus, Titus, and Luke. All four of those men are called fellow workers, the exact same word. So it's not just some lady who's really active in the church. This is a lady who's in a position of leadership and ministry. Okay? All right, number 10. Phoebe was a servant is the way it's translated in some translations, especially the older ones, or deaconess or minister 
at the church in Sencrea. We're going to read Romans 16 in just a minute, a good portion of it. But um, in a lot of translations, translated servant. And again, sometimes translators are influenced by their preconceptions because this is the same exact word for deacon, but it's translated servant. Okay? So, Phoebe was a servant or deaconess or minister at the church in Sancreas. Sometimes it's translated minister. This same word, again, is used to refer to other ministers and leaders, both men and women, in congregations. In fact, Paul even refers to himself using this term. Okay? And then number 11 is many women, quote, worked hard for the gospel along with Paul. And we're going to read that. I want you to notice in Romans chapter 16, the first 16 verses, it's the longest list. Paul usually at the end of his letters will say, hey, so-and-so sends greetings or please give my greetings to if it's people on the other end. Okay? But Romans has the longest list. He's not been to Rome yet. He wants to go there, but a lot of people that he knows are in Rome. Okay, and part of what he wrote in the book is, I'm coming, um, look, look out for me, I'm going to be there. Um, but in Romans 16, verses 1 to 16, he says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, the one we just mentioned, a servant or deaconess or a minister of the church in Sancria, that you may welcome her in a way that, welcome her in the Lord in a way that is worthy of the saints, and help her in whatever she may need from you, for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. This is someone who has, as a patron, has done a lot to help the cause of Christ, the gospel. Many people think she may have been um, the owner of the home where the church met in Sancria. Okay, going on in verse 3. Beat, uh, greet Prisca or Priscilla and Aquila. My fellow workers in Christ Jesus, there's that word fellow worker, which is again used of people at all levels of ministry, all right, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Epinetus, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Adronicus and Junia, there's Junia, my fellow kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and my beloved Stachys. Greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my kinsman Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those workers in the Lord, Tryphena and Tryphosa. Those are both females. Greet the beloved Persis, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord. Also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Petrobus, Hermas, and the brothers who are with them. Greet Philologus, Julia, Nereus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. He does have more men than women listed. A lot of women in there, and more women than men have extra, like, comments that Paul makes about them. Again, I don't think that these are all women that are recognized because they really did good cooking for potlucks, which is a very significant ministry, by the way. Do not treat that lightly, all right? But these were women who were significantly involved in ministry in the early church, okay? Hmm? That's right. Mm-hmm. But none of the men were identified as preachers or teachers in the church either. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, we're going to try to cover everything as relates to the topic. Okay, but you do make a point. Says it doesn't say that any of these women were preachers or whatever, but it doesn't say that any of the men were either. It's just a listing of people that were leaderships leaders in the early church. Okay. All right, another, con- uh, another concept that is biblical and it comes up in this discussion is the next thing on your note sheet. In many ways, men and women are equal in Christ. In many ways, they're not. Okay? Um, in what ways are men and women equal in Christ? As far as salvation is concerned. All right? We all need salvation the same way and we're all able to receive salvation the same way. Okay? How else are men and women equal in Christ? Yes, Candace. Okay, they both can they both can be called by God. Yes, and as we're going to see a little bit later on, they can both men and women can be used in the spiritual gifts. All right. Any other thoughts? Mm-hmm. Both men and women can be filled with the Holy Spirit and be used by the Holy Spirit. Yes. When they become one, they're pretty equal to yeah, yeah. Now there are ways in which men and women are not equal. Just because the Bible says they're equal doesn't mean that all of a sudden we're androgynous. androgynous. We're still different physically and in many other ways. Okay, and there are different roles in the home and things like that. And those who would say that this affects us that there are different roles in the church too. So that goes both ways, but just making a point here that there are many ways in which men and women are equal in Christ. We're going to go through this really quickly. First of all, the Bible says over and over, God is not a respecter of persons. Okay? Um, Romans 2.11 says, for God shows no partiality. Acts 10.34, Peter says, truly I understand that God shows no partiality. Um, Ephesians 6.9, Paul says, there is no partiality with God. I have Galatians 3.28 there all by itself because this is the one that is most often quoted. This is Paul. He says, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Basically, what he's saying is Jews, the people that have known God for millennium, okay, been God's people, and Gentiles, the heathens. When you're in Jesus, you're on the same plane. You're, you're, as they said, the foot is level. The, the ground is level at the foot of the cross, okay? Same thing for whether you're a free person or a slave. Man or a woman, the ground is level at the foot of the cross, all right? Number three, Jesus had women disciples as well as men disciples. Not among the twelve, but he did have women disciples. I preached a whole sermon on that one time on Mother's Day. We find that in Luke chapter 8, verses 1 to 3. And then the story in Luke 10, verses 38 to 42, when Mary and Martha are in their home, and Jesus and the disciples show up, and Martha's like, oh, i got to fix food, got to fix food. And Mary sits at his feet. That's the position of a disciple, to listen and to learn. And, 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 and Martha says, Jesus, make, make Mary help me. And he says, she's chosen the better part. Yeah, Vita. A disciple means a follower. Yeah. Disciple just basically means a follower or a student or a learner. Yep. All right. Number four, as this has already been mentioned, God fills both men and women with the Holy Spirit. He did on the day of Pentecost. He still does. And he fills all believers with the Holy Spirit. That's what's so wonderful. The Holy Spirit's work in the Old Testament was just in and through certain individuals. But that's... The thing that's really cool about after Jesus and the day of Pentecost, all of God's people has the Holy Spirit, have the Holy Spirit dwelling within them, and God wants to fill them over and over and over again, afresh and anew. We should pray for that and believe for that, okay? 
All right. Number five, none of the gifts of the Spirit are limited according to gender. When you look at the list of the gifts of the Spirit, and that's what those scriptures are. We're not going to read them tonight, but Romans chapter 12, verses 6 to 8. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7 to 11 and 27 to 28. Ephesians 4, verses 7 to 12. And 1 Peter 4, 10 and 11. There are lists of gifts of the Spirit. And um, I personally don't believe they're even exhaustive. I mean, God calls people to do all kinds of stuff and empowers them to. But none of them say, well, here's certain gifts and they're only for men. And here's certain gifts and they're only for women. They're for believers, men and women. All right. Now, you might say, well, all this stuff, I mean, God's using women in the Old Testament, He's using them in the New Testament, for these, blah, 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 blah. Why is this even an issue? It's because there's primarily two passages of Scripture that when you take them just those verses, it's like, oh, my goodness, it sounds like Paul saying, no, women can't be used for certain things. And we're going to jump in those in just a moment. But first, I want to deal with this topic. And that is that not just on this issue, but on some other issues. As we read through Scripture, both Old Testament, but we're focusing more on the New Testament, there are certain things that those Scriptures and the meaning and the application of those Scriptures are affected by our understanding of the culture in which they are said. Okay? God is still communicating His truth. And he's communicating it through the culture, but we have to understand the culture to know how to apply it. There are sometimes people that say, and, and in the right context, it's the truth, that we should just take God's word as it says and just obey it exactly as it says it. And we'd say, well, yeah, but yet there are certain things we don't do that because it has to be interpreted through culture. All right, But you've got to be very careful because that can be a very slippery slope. That is some of the excuses that people are saying, well, yeah, I know that they said back then that homosexuality and this kind of stuff is wrong, but it's not to, it was a cultural thing. But that's one of those things that's not a cultural thing, and that's a whole other study. We talked about it once before. All right, But I want to give you some examples because some might be saying, well, no, no, no. We just need to take God's word at God's word and do exactly what it says. Let me give you a couple examples. We already read one of them. Romans 16, 16. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Any of you kiss somebody else when you came in here tonight, other than maybe your spouse, to greet them? Why not? That's what the Bible tells us to do. Okay? I'm not making fun. I'm just helping us understand principles here, okay? That was the way they greeted each other in their culture. So if we were to apply that today, how would we apply that today? We'd say, we need to greet one another warmly. Give a hug. Shake a hand. Like I did at the greeting time. I said, hey, greet one another a hug, handshake, whatever's appropriate for you and the other person, all right? So that's an example of a principle in God's word that we're still supposed to obey, but the way it, it applies in a cultural way, okay? All right. This one is kind of related to what we're talking about tonight, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 4 to 6. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every wife or woman, that word can be translated either way, who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. So, if we were to take this literally and say, okay, we have to obey it exactly as Paul said it here, that means that any time a woman prayed in church, she would need to make sure that her head is covered. Okay? 
How many of you ladies have ever prayed out loud in a prayer meeting or in a church or whatever? None of you? I know a lot of you have. Did you make sure your head was covered? No. Yes, that's the whole thing in some cultures, even today. But there are some religious groups who still, Christian religious groups, who still have their ladies cover their heads, okay, because of the scripture. But the purpose here is that in their culture, when a woman was single, she didn't have to cover her hair. That was part of her beauty and all that kind of stuff. But once you became married, you would keep your hair covered. Because the idea was that if you uncovered your hair as a married woman, you were trying to tempt other men. You, it was a sign of promiscuity. It could be a sign of prostitutions. The prostitutes always went around. And so in that culture, it's like, okay, well, we want to be a good witness. And so we need to make sure that the married women keep their heads covered. All right? So a way we can apply this today, Paul could say, hey, listen, ladies, when you come to church, don't wear your bathing suit. I, I mean, that's a silly example, but I'm just saying be decent, be modest, you know, don't bring disgrace upon your womanhood or, or whatever, okay? So that's the idea that is there. The significance of the uncovered head was associated with their culture, with promiscuity and prostitution. Yeah, Vita. Yeah, if you go or become part of a group that does that, out of respect, you ought to participate in that. There's no reason to unnecessarily offend them or whatever. Okay, we need to move on. So I'm laying some foundations here. So 1 Timothy chapter 2, um, verses 8 to 10. All right? I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise, also, that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Any of you ladies ever braid your hair? I don't see any tonight, but according to this, you shouldn't do that. Ever wear any gold jewelry? Anybody got Maybe you ladies are in. Okay, according to this, it says you shouldn't be wearing gold jewelry. Again, if you're taking this absolutely literal, how about pearls? Fancy clothes? Costly attire? What's the issue? The issue isn't... The, the issue is the same thing, okay? The braided hair and all that kind of stuff was either an issue of pride or that's the way the prostitutes would dress. Yeah, Lynn, you wanted to say something? Exactly. And you said a very important word, the principle. Principle. We've got to get to the root principles of what's saying here. Because some of these things are root principles in and of themselves. Some have a root principle behind a cultural thing. We don't need our culture in its sinfulness to affect the church. But there are some cultural things that are either sinful or not sinful, but the principle behind it is important, and that's what we're talking about here. Okay? So you're talking about Timothy. We just read out of uh, 1 Corinthians, but now we go to 1 Timothy chapter 2. And this actually is one of the two verses, uh, two passages we're going to look at. We've got to get there really quick. I'm taking too long here. Uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 to 10. I deserve, uh, oh, I just read that one. I'm sorry. 1 Corinthians 14, verses 33 to 34. For God is not a confusion, of a, but of peace. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches. For they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission as the law also says. This is one of the two verses, and we're going to deal with what does he mean by that women keep silent in the church as far as women in leadership in a moment. Okay, But this is one of those examples of how literal do we take this. 
Okay? Some churches use, some religious practices use this verse, say, well, women should not preach, they should not teach, they should not lead because they're supposed to keep silent in churches. What does the scripture say? It says women should keep silent in the churches. So every one of you women that have asked a question or given an answer to a question, if we're going to take this absolutely, strictly, literally have broken that. So in context, it must mean within certain guidelines. That's all I'm going to leave it at, okay? Either that or literally men should be the only ones that ever speak in church. But this would contradict what Paul already said because he says women can pray and prophesy in church. How can Paul say in the exact same letter, women can pray and prophesy in church, but women should keep silent in the church? I don't think he said that women can pray and prophesy in church. He did. We read it earlier. That's not what we read. He didn't say in church, right in the Bible. Yes, we do. It's in the, it's in the, it's in the chapters on the spiritual gifts as they're used within the church. The whole three chapters are on the spiritual gifts used in the church, and he talks about prophecy as it's used in the church, and he says women can pray and prophesy. That's what it is in context. Okay. Don't want to keep cutting things off, but we've got to get through this, all right? So, anyway, um, another thing here, uh, I just noticed here, you've got a thing with a blank, passages on slavery. You say, what does that have to do with this? We dealt with that as a whole lesson. Okay, even though the Bible talks about slavery, it doesn't ever prove it or whatever, whatever, whatever. But the same principles that people use to say women cannot be involved in leadership in the church, because this is what the scriptures say, they use that same process, not saying they're in the same camp or anything, or have used that same process to justify slavery. Because it's talked about in scripture, and we can do what scripture says. Now, we dug into that. We don't need to redig into that whole topic. If you missed it, you can go back and listen to it online. But again, it's an example of you've got to look at scriptures in context, the culture and all that kind of stuff. We had a great discussion on that. So we've got to wrap this thing up because we're almost at the end. So what are the two passages that cause problems? What are the two passages that make it to where um, some religious traditions say women should not be pastors, they should not be preachers, and they should not be teachers unless it's just over children and other women? All right? I read this one earlier, 1 Corinthians 14, verses 33 to 35. For God is, not a con- God, God is not a God of confusion but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there's anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Again, you take that at surface, you take it literally, you don't take it in context, what was going on at the situation, to be like, women shouldn't be saying nothing in church. And again, when Paul said they can pray and prophesy, how do we deal with this? Well, first of all, um, one thing that is a real sticking point here, it says, for as God, for God is not a confu- God of confusion but of peace, period, as in all the churches of the saints, comma, the women should keep silent in the churches. That's the way this translation puts that. But in the Greek, there is no punctuation. There are many other translations that translate it as, for God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, as is true in all the churches of the saints. That is a legitimate translation of that. And then, new sentence. Women should keep silent in the churches. So, that phrase, as in all the churches of the saints, could refer to the women keep silent, or it could just refer to the the thing that came before it. Okay? All right. Keep that in mind. Now, as I said, Paul had already told this church that women can pray and prophesy in public. So why would he say that 
just a couple chapters before and now say they can't. He's not going to contradict himself. God's word's not going to contradict himself, okay? All right. Now, keep in mind, this isn't the only place Paul said somebody should be silent. I see hands and stuff, but it's time for us to go. I'm just going to have to finish, and if you got questions or comments, you can talk to me afterwards. I know you'd love to say it where everybody could hear it. I would, too, but we're almost out of time. Okay, so let me go here. So 1 Corinthians 14, all right? That's what we just read, verses 33 to 35. But if we look at that, go up to verse 28. Um, let me start in verse 27. He's talking about spiritual gifts. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or at the most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in the church and speak to himself and God. That's saying there's a certain situation in which people need to keep silent, but it's not every situation. If you go on beyond that, verse 29, let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. They weren't silent, but now they're supposed to be silent. So he's giving instructions about times when certain people are supposed to be silent and not supposed to be silent. Now, I want to tell you, one way to interpret this is exactly the way some people tell it, that women should be silent in church. But if that's the case... They shouldn't be saying nothing. But the other way is that God may be talking, or God through Paul, may be talking about specific situations. And look at what he says in this specific situation. He says, um, there we go. If, they, if there's anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home. Okay? There is a whole group of Bible scholars who say what this is talking about in the church. Remember, Corinthian was a messed up church. All kinds of disorder, disunity, um, uh, chaos going on in services. With and without spiritual gifts and this, that, and the other. And so a very real scenario is here is these women who in their culture mostly were not very educated. But now they're free in Christ and they, they get the privilege of learning about Jesus and about God and this, that, and the other. And in the chaos that was going on, we're asking questions in the middle of the service. And sometimes they weren't the brightest questions. And, and it's like, this is getting too chaotic, okay? Y'all just need to be quiet. Uh, again, you got three chapters on the spiritual gift. Here's how you do the spiritual gifts so everything's done decently in order. You got questions. Just be quiet, okay? Ask your husband at home, all right? That is a very real and very valid interpretation of what Paul is saying here, okay? So, on your note sheet, in light of the other problems mentioned in this letter, Paul's admonition here is probably in reference to excessive disruptions and disorder taking place in the services, and that his exhortation for the women to keep silent is similar to his exhortation to those that are giving messages in tongues to be silent under certain conditions and people that are prophesying to be in silent in certain conditions so there's decency and order and no chaos and disruption in the service. Now, I know it's past time, but let's deal with the last one, all right? And I won't be able to deal with it as deeply as I'd like to because we're running out of time. First Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 to 15. Let a woman live quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in the faith and love and holiness and with self-control. Don't ask me what it means that she'll be saved through childbearing because I don't know. I've studied it and I've not come through. I mean, there's a lot of different ideas out there. Okay. But here's the other verse that's like, this is, this is pretty strong. 
Okay? Let me just give you a couple thoughts because we've got to wrap this up. The word phrase for exercise authority over is found nowhere else in the New Testament. And to exercise authority over is one way that it can be translated because they do have examples of this word in Greek literature, but nowhere else in the New Testament. But it can also mean to usurp authority over, in other words, to take authority away from somebody or something like that. Okay? Um, some people say, well, this is a principle that's just, I mean, it's just a solid principle because he goes all the way back to creation to give support that women shouldn't do this, okay? And that's a very important concept. The thing is, is that Paul does the exact same thing. He goes all the way back to creation to give support to the idea that ladies should keep their heads covered. So maybe it's not quite as foundational like this is definitely for sure in all situations as it seems. It's just an example that he is using. So to wrap this up, because we got to go, on your note sheet, there's a strong indication that Paul is offering advice to Timothy on how to confront the heretical teaching and misconduct occurring among a number of the women within the church at Ephesus. Timothy is, First Timothy is written to Timothy, who's pastoring Ephesus. There's a lot of false teaching going on. These men are coming into the church. They're seducing the women. The women have not had the education, so they are giving in and believing this false teaching. They're causing problems in the church. Um, there's a number of passages, if you read the whole thing, where the women are causing problems, and Paul's like, okay, guys, just we just got to shut this down, okay? The idea being that for now, just don't. Let the women learn. They don't know enough yet. Just let them learn in quietness and submission until they can get their act, until they, until we can get this problem taken care of. Okay? All right. That is a very valid understanding of what Paul is saying here. Now, it's also a very valid understanding to say women shouldn't speak in the churches. But again, it's, it's like, but Paul loves the women and their leadership in the church. So why would he, this, this is a better way to me to explain why he's saying what he's saying. Now, let me just say this, that as I said at the very beginning, there are good, solid, Bible-believing Christians that believe all along this spectrum. Okay, It doesn't make them a heretic if they don't believe the same way we do. And when we leave here, we may have a whole range of views from this room. And that's okay. I just tried to present all the different ones. To wrap this up, I really think that this is one of those issues that Peter talked about. 2 Peter 3, 15 to 16, we're going to wrap this up. Peter says, and count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and the unstable twist to their own destruction as they do in other scriptures. If Peter had a hard time understanding some of the stuff that Paul wrote about, I don't feel so bad that I don't have a hard time understanding everything that Paul wrote about, Okay. Yes, we are still learning, okay? Let's pray. I'm sure I left some of you frustrated because you wanted to say some things and all that kind of stuff, but we had to get through. Father God, we love you. We thank you, Lord, for your goodness. We thank you, Lord, that because of what Jesus did on the cross, Lord God, that we are all in the same place, can be in the same place in our relationship with you, that you don't value men over women or women over men. You don't care about our social status, our financial status, none of that. God, you want to use each and every one of us, and I pray that you'd help each of us to find the place where you want to use us. And Father, I pray, dear Lord God, that you would help us to always be learning and growing in our understanding of your word. And Father, we just thank you and praise you for it, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.
We hope you've enjoyed listening to today's message or Bible study. For more information, please contact us at area code 352-347-3001 or visit us online. If you are interested in supporting this ministry, go to our website and click on the online giving tab. Our website address is www.marionoaksag.org. 